0: Starting a podcast can be very time-consuming. I've been doing it for more than three years now, and my biggest challenge was finding a way to distribute my episodes across major audio platforms in a way that was easy, effective, and free to use. That's when I came across Anchor. And the best part is that you can actually make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's going on, everybody? This is George Gleef and it's episode 15 of Let's Grab Coffee. Today I'm joined by Daryl Pinto, Research Director at CBCA. Uh, very excited to talk to Daryl. He has a very, very interesting background. He's worked at TSX before Toronto Stock Exchange, which is where I work. He's had roles with Thomson Reuters. He's lived across the world in major cities like Toronto, New York, London, Shanghai, uh, very excited just to talk about the entrepreneurial ecosystem, the capital raising environment in Canada and what Daryl is seeing. Daryl, thanks for being here. Well, oh, it's my pleasure. Appreciate it. So uh, to the audience, you know, if you can give us a, a quick sort of snapshot of, of who you are and, and your background, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, well, let me start with what I do right now. Sure. Uh, we're
1: sitting here in the, in the office of the Canadian Venture Capital and Private Equity Association. Uh, but I have a long, long history of working in different organizations. I started my professional career at the organization George mentioned on the, on the floor of the Toronto Stock Exchange when there was still a physical trading floor. Uh, by far the most exciting job I've ever had in my life and uh, yeah, I've, I've done many things, uh, management consulting, I've worked at uh, the Institutional Limited Partners Association in the pharma industry and uh, I love being back now in the private capital ecosystem.
0: Hmm. And so, so you brought up TSX, very interested to ask, how, how are the days on the trading floor?
1: Uh, you know, I, I remember my first day, my first day was nerve-wracking because I was a history and a philosophy graduate coming okay. into the Toronto Stock Exchange. I knew <laughs> nothing, nothing about finance. My, my path of acceptance into that trading floor job was 40 words a minute typing speed. Uh, because wow. at that time, that time, the trading floor was going to be closed and a lot of people were leaving for, for job security and they were hiring students just to be able to fill a, a short six-month assignment until the floor closed. So, uh, they, they brought on board people who just wanted to, to work on the floor and train them. And uh, I was like a sponge, so I <laughs> everything I could. Um, and that, that program or that project got delayed a few years. Mm-hmm. So, I, I was a bit lucky, but it was a great foundation for me to then uh, jettison into other parts of the exchange. Uh, I worked in the training department and uh, finally in the, in the research area. So, I was there for 10 years in total uh, in different
0: and wow. I saw a lot of change during that time with the exchange
1: yeah. going from physical trading floor to electronic, um, there were many acquisitions made by the TSX at the time. Uh, we used to have regional uh, stock markets in, in Alberta, right. and Vancouver, Vancouver. Yeah. and those are now all part of the TSX, or TMX now, TMX Monroe. Sure.
0: So, So it's interesting, a lot of your background is in capital markets. So, you did bring up the fact that you know, your philosophy slash history major from Western, I believe. That's right. right. For a lot of people watching this, especially uh, just I guess general audience at large, when they think of history, philosophy, uh, it, there's often a disconnect between you know, obviously that and finance, and I think people often see it as a barrier. Yeah. Like, how can you have that major and get into cap markets, especially doing what you do? How, how did you transition? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question, George. And I have to
1: tell you that uh, the traditional path is clearly not start with history and philosophy <laughs> into, into finance. Um, and the reason I chose it was because I loved it. I, I was actually in computer science in my first year and realized that this is not the, the thing I want to be doing for the rest of my life. Uh, I loved my history and philosophy classes and made the decision I was going to do something I enjoy mm-hmm. without a view to what I was going to do later on in life. Um, and then I struggled with a with a graduate. Uh, after graduating there was a recession and I had this history and philosophy degree which was not very marketable for me. So. For two years, I kind of wandered around doing different things, mostly part-time and, and assignments, uh, short-term assignments. Uh, and I, I got a lucky break with that uh, floor job on, on the Toronto stock exchange. Um, and I kind of made my career from, from that point on. But I would tell everyone that I in no way regret the history and philosophy degree. What it has given me is a, is a really broad-minded foundation in whatever endeavor I've done, from capital markets to pharmaceuticals to consulting, Uh, It's given me a broad way to look at a problem and be able to dissect it and problem solve. And um, when I did my MBA much later at Rotman, one of the enduring things I picked up was was the dean had done a lot of research on what makes a person successful in the long run. Mm -hmm. And he had made many hires over the course of his career. Uh, He always used to keep their resume. People that he hired and people that he didn't hire in his drawer. And once a year, he would pull those out. And he would just kind of reflect on where these people were in their careers. And the amazing stat for the guy that was pretty bright, was that he had a 50-50 shot of getting the right candidate in the long run. He made mistakes just like everyone else. Um, what his research was telling him, that people with a broad start in their undergraduate years, some arts or social science background, then went into business were far more successful in the long run. And it kind of validated what, what, I, what I had done, although I didn't feel... At that point in my career it didn't yeah. feel like well, I made the right choice. It just happened to be lucky, uh you know, lucky to put accidents for me.
0: So if you look back, and, and these these are great pointers, and I'm sure anybody listening with that sort of background uh, you know values that. But but if, if you look back now to you know their like, say early or, or mid-20s, which would you have thought that this would be the career path that you were going to take? Absolutely not. Uh, I went
1: to Western and did my uh, undergraduate history and philosophy. I never once walked into the Ivy School of Business, never once in the wow. years that I was there. So, I, I business was completely foreign goal for me back then. So, what made you get into, into the business side more so? Like,
0: pursue your MBA and then?
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, while I was working at the Toronto Stock Exchange, I had an amazing mentor. Okay. Uh, and one of the pieces of the advice he gave me. Because he, he sort of saw in me the sort of the drive and the ambition and, and, you know, I certainly wanted to to work in capital markets. And he said to me, listen, you have, you have this history and philosophy degree, but you need something else. You need another formal notch, a CFA or an MBA if you're going to stay in this industry and climb the ladder. So that's what sort of seeded me with the idea of um, doing my MBA. And, and while I was kind of researching, whether to do one and where to do one. I was talking to a lot of people with MBAs, including one woman who worked at the Toronto Stock Exchange. Wow. I think she's actually still there, Eleanor Fritz. Uh, but, uh, but I asked her, what's your advice? Yeah. And she said to me, to save my money, not to do an MBA, but learn how to have a conversation. And I thought That's at the good. time, I thought at the time, I-, I can't put that on my resume, <laughs> and, and thanks very much, but you know, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Yeah. But in hindsight, it was the best advice I ever got. It really was, because I, I, when I see successful people and interact with them, regardless of what their pedigree and degrees are, they really can relate to other human beings, no matter what their title, no matter where in the world they're from,
0: to be able to just have a conversation with
1: them. Kind of like what you're doing right now.
0: Yeah, I know. It's very true. And I think I mentioned you this before, but uh, there's a book called uh, Humans Are Unrelated. And, and the whole premise, especially in, in an era of huge sort of technological advancement, the, the biggest driver right now, I think that the author was, was pointing to, was... Um, you know, I guess the basic human tenets are the ones that are going to be the most valuable, you know, so say, five to twenty years from now. Empathy, creativity, you know, just human connection, like all the things that you highlighted. Uh, and, and I think EQ is probably the the, the thing that that's least taught in, in school. You know, both high school and university, we focus a lot on IQ and, and not so much on EQ. What What was it for you? So, so given that advice, how how did you sort of leverage that, and, and how did you actually uh, sort of put it put it to use? Um, it really, for me, was sort of an
1: accidental path uh, over time. I've just been a great observer. As an mm-hmm. introvert, I've observed a lot of detail that other people don't pick up. Mm-hmm. And I've just watched successful people. Uh, I guess the best teacher in that regard, uh, when I left the exchange, I worked for a small research boutique firm called McDonald & Associates. Mm-hmm. And Mary McDonald was the CEO there. She was just a spitfire of a personality everyone in Canada in private equity and venture capital knew her, loved her, her ability to be able to connect with any human being. Uh, there are still people today, senior people in industry who were junior when she was around and they talk about her with amazing love and respect. Mm. Uh, so, so she would drag me to these meetings and I would just watch her interact with people. Uh, it was an amazing way to learn. The best, the best non-degree I have I think is with Mary
0: when mm. what she taught me. So, and, and you point to something interesting, introvert slash detailed, uh, or I guess detail oriented, but, but you, have, you have an eye for detail, right? Very analytical. Uh, was that always something with you? Like, did you feel that that was a trait or something that you built, I guess, more towards?
1: I think it was always a trait. Uh, if you had met me 20 years ago, yeah. I, I really would. Probably not initiate a conversation with you. I was a shy person, Um, I I think most introverts are. And I always looked at that as a bit of a weakness because in this industry, especially in this industry, you have to be outgoing, you're networking. Uh, And I wasn't that. I mean, I was was quiet, I was a woman observing other conversations um, until I read a book by Susan Cain called Quiet. And what what she did was look at introverts and how they approach the world and how they approach any kind of problem in general. And there are a lot of famous introverts, like Martin Luther King to, to there's a whole list that I can't probably name off right now. But but um, the way we see the world, we do pick up on, on observations that ext- extroverts typically don't. Mm-hmm. The way we think through through a problem is we've got to get the perfect solution before we open our mouth, And mm-hmm. that's why we're so quiet We're kind of formulating what we're going to say. Um, and what Mary taught me in terms of how to move the needle away from being so quiet is that sometimes I've got to think through my problem-solving out loud. Mm. you know, not to be afraid of that because I don't have to wait until I get the perfect formulation of an idea before I start, start speaking. So for me, it's been a gradual comfort level being increased with just uh, being able to articulate ideas, even have big ideas, mm. uh, and just growing in confidence there. And the other funny thing is this week I've started getting Curious about improv, so I've done yeah. two drop-in improv. That's classes. right, you were telling me that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's it's an, you, you talked about human relations and yeah. how you know we build off a EQ. Those experiences, those two drop-in improvs, have been amazing ways to be able to see that in action. Sure. When you're when you're trying to riff off of someone else, not really knowing what they're going to say, and you are going to come up with that next line, paying attention to their body language, making eye contact—that's a huge part of that. You really play off their energy. Right. Just like you do in a conversation, and, and I'm actually learning how to do this a lot better. Even <laughs> yeah. though I think I'm good at it,
0: Uh it's
1: a bit of fun, but
0: uh, I'm just yeah. As well. well, I mean, I guess that, that's also why. It's, I mean, I think people discredit how difficult it is to do like something like stand-up comedy, for example, where a lot of it is is improv. Uh, but I, for example, when I was when I was in the high school, I, I did a musical like Annie, oh, um, wow. and I played Mr. Warbucks for everybody on record. We'll not <laughs> release that that video, but. uh you know, I really do think that that actually sort of gave me a lot of the confidence just to be on stage and, and, and to be a little loose. Typically, especially in our industry, you know, that's what when we're presenting, you know, the pitch or, you know, you have a pitch deck and everything's linear and, you know, start with this and end with this and end with a call, like call to action. It's so often linear, whereas improv, it's kind of like you just feel a little loose, right? Like it's more creative in a sense and, and you can express yourself in a, in a more... Reform. Sure. Uh, so, so, kudos to you uh, for that, I'm, I'm sure that you know, it's obviously challenging, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do.
1: You know, once I made that switch, not seeing introversion as a, as a weakness, oh. I mean, this is who I am and this is how I would approach, uh, let's say, a networking event, I've kind of made a game of it now. Uh, you made the point about, you know, there's a script you follow, and it gets kind of tedious, yeah. I completely agree. When you're at a networking event, you ask the questions. Yeah. Hey, George, uh, where do you work, what do you do? Yeah. And, and beyond the superficial, it's really tough, especially when you have 500 people there, right? Yeah. So the game that I make of it is in an, in an evening of networking. I want to have at least three meaningful conversations that, that dip below the superficial hey business card exchange for you two. Right. Um, and that game of chasing the three meaningful conversations makes every networking event a little bit more uh, engaging for me yeah. as an introvert.
0: And and uh, so I love that. I want to also segue into the fact that um, you know what you're doing now has all to do with research, right? A lot of, a lot of the community watching this as well uh, come from either entrepreneurial backgrounds, they have startups, some are early, some are mid, some are late stage. Um, I know you're super passionate about, about the space, Daryl, and, and you're, you're very good at what you do, seriously. Uh, and, and just, I mean, since, since we have you, we want to leverage your insights as to what you're seeing right now in Canada, uh, you know, with the VC space. We've talked about, I guess, all the other verticals, but I just want to focus, in Canada right now, I guess my question is, how is the capital raising environment and is it advantageous for people who actually are founding uh, startups? Sure. So the, the
1: short answer to your question is it is amazing. It's awesome to be an entrepreneur right now in Canada. Uh, the long answer is I compare it to when I worked on the Mary uh, about 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, and the environment back then was very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you didn't have the startup ecosystem was still very early on. It It almost was... I think about a young person graduating from university back then. Entrepreneurship was not an option uh, for them. Mm. It wasn't the most pursued option. Uh, Whereas now, young people, uh, the startup community, it's it's sexy to be an entrepreneur, right? Um, So very different. So A, there's more people, critical mass of people pursuing entrepreneurship uh, to begin with. And then the ecosystems, especially in the big cities like Kitchener Waterloo, Toronto Corridor, mm-hmm. there's uh, Montreal, Vancouver, those areas have done an amazing job in, in bringing together entrepreneurs with accelerators, with funding, with VCs. So these uh, these random knocks of people in, mm-hmm. the, in the right ecosystem are creating some amazing outputs uh, in terms of successful companies like Wealthsimple, like Palmic Labs, you see a lot of that happen, more so than 10 years ago. So right. I think it's it's just amazing to see the growth in that
0: uh, in that space. It's funny. I mean, you, you bring that. I guess you bring up this point where 10 years ago entrepreneurship was not as, as romanticized as it is today. I would even say humorously, like entrepreneurship was pretty much unemployment. Uh, you know, sure. back in the day, at least that, that that's how you know some of my uh, family members saw it. But uh, it, yeah, it definitely is interesting to see more of that that demand. So I guess a, a counter question to that is: there's more entrepreneurs. Is capital ramping up at the same speed, and is it plentiful enough to support the the startups in Canada? Uh, I would say so. The
1: yeah, absolutely yes. Uh, there's more choice out there. So mm-hmm. yes, you have the traditional venture capitalists, uh, and, you know, and some companies is private equity. But you're not you're not asking about so those types of companies. But if you if you look at where you work, TSX, I mean, look at the way that you guys have pivoted around uh you know what was traditional public companies mature right. whereas now you have tasex venture you have uh startups you're you're, you're launching a platform i believe right. it's pretty soon targeting that so uh there are many options VC debt uh, yeah. never existed back yeah. ago, 10 years ago whereas now it's uh it's a evolving uh, asset class so i would say that this from an entrepreneur standpoint there's a lot of choice out there uh whereas 10 years ago there was you know Venture capital very selective, uh, not enough money to support critical mass of uh,
0: startups. Can you give us some numbers? I know, I know. Obviously, uh, I want to talk a bit about. And if, if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you go to CBCA. They have an amazing report that, that Daryl and the team sort of produce. Just some quick figures for the audience, sort sure. of uh, listening and tuning in. Where are you seeing the most demand? I mean, we know this obviously. Ontario. Uh, if you if you really go micro, it's Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver. Those are kind of the hubs. But, but can you give us some figures, some light as to where most of it is coming from? Sure.
1: Well, we just uh, released our 2017 year-end report last week, yeah. and um, 3.5 billion was invested in 2017 in venture capital. Uh, so, th- just Amazing. to give you a sense of, you know, relative, that's for most that's been invested in venture capital uh, since the financial crisis in oh. 2008, and yeah. uh, more importantly, it isn't a bubble. It's been a very steady increase since 2008. So it's uh, it's legitimate. I mean, I think it's, it's a very healthy sign of an ecosystem that is developing and pacing itself just right. Uh, because I remember the heydays of 10 years ago where we'd have spikes up and then the next year it would be drought. Uh, we're not seeing that level uh, of uh, activity compared to 10 years ago. I, I do want to make
0: uh, the point, because I, I do hear this often, is you know, Georgia, look, I've, I've tried to raise capital. I've tried to contact VCs, you know, angels, and, and although there are many, I haven't gotten as much reception in Canada as I would in the U.S. So, sorry, man, I'm, I'm in the corner. I have to either go to, you know, to the Valley or or, or some, maybe New York, some of the big capital centers uh, in the U.S. like Boston as well, uh, just just to access that the different pool of capital. Do you still feel, you know, that that's heavily present? So... I'll I'll answer your question, by circling
1: back to the earlier part of our conversation, okay. uh, in terms of uh, you know networking and building relationships, right? Because entrepreneurs have to realize that it's not automatic. I mean, you may have a business, best business pitch in the world on a PowerPoint deck, but if you can't relate to another human being and be able to convince them that you are very passionate about this and you believe in it, uh, that's a human interaction. That's mm. not a, a pitch deck anymore. Um, I remember ten years ago I was in Silicon Valley and I had. Was in an elevator with one of the prominent VC's there, and I asked him this question. I mean, you get pitched a million times. How do you decide? You know, are you A you or are you B? He goes, yeah. "What it boils down to, a man, is I trust the person,
0: yeah. and
1: trust isn't something you can deliver on a pitch deck. Trust is something you build through a conversation, and maybe not just one conversation, maybe fifteen conversations over three years. Yeah. But that ability is something that is absolutely fundamental to getting funding, um, and it takes patience." takes patience. Uh, so if you're getting frustrated as an entrepreneur that you're knocking on doors uh, and the one conversation doesn't result in funding, it's the approach. You've got to start to look at how you're doing it, how you're actually conveying your idea to another human being.
0: I love that. There's one point I really want to make sort of like, a, sort of a you know, um, I just want to really focus on. So you made the point that it, it it's not, it's not just easy, like it's not going to come to you on a silver platter. Right. I think what we're seeing also a lot in the tech space is a lot of entrepreneurs nowadays are focusing on raising money instead of generating revenue. Right. So, so, so are you seeing that divide? And, and if so, I mean, that does that lead to a bubble? Because I think, I mean, you kind of have to argue that it, it, it has become a little bit easier, you know, in the in sense of like securing a series A, series B for a lot of companies they are pre-revenue, you know? So, so what, what is like, what, just, just what, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an investor
1: myself, but I have heard investors say the formula that they use uh, when they decide on a round of funding, you an entrepreneur that they believe it, they've now trusted this person, they think that they're going to achieve their goals, is that they want to give them enough funding for at least two years of runway to be able to, you know, achieve some milestones. If you're getting less funding than a two-year runway, I, I think you're setting yourself up for being in constant fundraising mode which doesn't help your business to your point right, right. You're, you're trying to raise funds as opposed to grow your business mm-hmm. so uh, the plan your plan has to be a long run 10 years in between you gotta have milestones that your partner investor will agree to uh, but ultimately it's give yourself enough time to focus on hitting those milestones and growing your business
0: interesting uh, one of the things too you mentioned which I really want to touch up on is, is the trust factor, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sure you also, I mean, you go, we go to the same conferences, same events, and, and you see a lot of uh, entrepreneurs pitching and, and trying to get in contact with VCs when they're trying to raise capital. What advice would you give on that point to someone watching this who's actually sure. undergoing the process? So I'll tell you first what
1: to not do. Okay. And then I'll tell you, I think okay. what works for me. Um, the cold call is the worst way. The worst <laughs> way, if you are sending blast emails to a number of VCs, the same email completely yeah, uh, like a customer, absolutely, yeah. chances are you're not going to get a response. Chances are they haven't even opened your email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if you're getting frustrated, it's because the, the approach is, is just the wrong one. Uh, because you can't build trust through a blast email. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, the best advice I can give you is to start to network within the industry uh, if you know another CEO, or a colleague, another startup founder that has gotten VC funding, make them your best friend. Because if they can give you a warm handshake into a VC, mm. that VC will take a meeting. So there's a community of very successful startup founders in Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal. Get to know them. Be part of that community. Because the introduction from someone who has received VC funding is the, is the best way in to get to that 30-minute uh, or one-hour meeting with VC
0: yeah, no, I definitely agree. I, th- I think the, the sort of warm lead is, is much, much, much easier. And, and those templates, because as, as you said, all you need is that five minute, right? Like just get me through the door. And then if you, if you meet sort of face to face, then I guess we'll make magic happen. What sort of uh, like you mentioned events and, and networking opportunities, obviously for a founder watching this, uh, but what I hear often is, you know, that's great George, but I also, I also have a business to run, to grow, to build. And so they often see that as a waste of time. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if, you, if you've if heard that feedback, but I do hear it often. So sometimes founders are either focused on that or they just sort of brush it off and, and say, no, I'm going to focus on executing a building and, and keep that to the side. Sure. Uh, and that attitude
1: isn't uh, specific to just founders. I see that. I do a lot of volunteering with newcomers to Canada and I keep telling them the same advice. Network. Mm-hmm. Network your way into that job. And they're like, well, I, 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 it's a waste of time. I mean, I'm not going to get my job tomorrow if I network. And, and it's, it takes a lot of patience, but I say, even now, I mean, I have a job, a full-time job, but for me, I, I, I actually fix in my networking component and I have two copies a week, that's my goal. At least two copies a week with someone I know or someone I haven't in touch base with for six to eight months. Yes. Uh, it's it's a way of life today, yeah. right? You can never rely on, uh, if you if you have a full-time job on that being permanent, that's number one, and you can never rely, if you have a startup that you're trying to grow, that that, Networking is is uh is going to happen overnight. It's got to be part of your practice. And yes, I understand you're going to be spending a lot of hours building your business, but you need to carve the time out for the networking component because it will lead to good things in the long run.
0: Yeah, I mean, you almost have to see it as, as you said, as, as part of your role, because it, there really is value out of that. And, and to your point, like just setting some targets, like you know, doing two week uh, two coffees a week, which is which is nice. And I think. Uh, The the sort of saying I say is is power is people, you know, I guess the more people, you know, the more power you have in in a a positive context. And the reason is, you know, if I know you, for example, first of all, if if there's anything that I can, I can think of that, that you and I can work on, it's much easier to pick up the phone and say, Hey, hey Daryl, what's going on, man? All good versus Daryl. Hi, this is George from the TSA. So I guess the intro is much more informal, which leads to sort of quicker decisions. But also, uh, I can provide more value to you because if I meet someone else, for example, and they want to connect to someone, for example, in your world, I just make the connection happen and I provide value through that. And I'm the same way. And when we met for
1: a coffee, George, I think it was last week or the week before, uh, I mean, that skill, I mean, you have it in drugs. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. I have it too. But that skill is something that you probably worked toward getting. It wasn't something you were born with. My guess is that. Uh, but finding something that you have in common with someone else right. is part of that networking ability, I think. And we discovered through our coffee conversation, yeah. we had a lot in common. Other sure. things, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Uh, but that curiosity about someone, outside of what do I want to get out of this conversation, I think that's very
0: much part of the element of building trust. In, in that's that, so and critical, man. Too. And even more so, I think when you live in cities, a lot of relationships are, are transactional. Mm-hmm. I sit down with you, the first thing I want to know is, Daryl, what can you do for me? And, and, and not only people-to-people. People. I think a lot of businesses have this issue where all they're doing is product pushing. Right. And my question to a lot of the companies is, well, what value are you providing up front? Because the notion that you think that you own the client is very, very incorrect. The client always owns you because now they have options. But they also have transparency with things like social media. And so you're always on the back burner uh, in, in most cases. Yeah, I,
1: mean, I put myself in the shoes of the receiving end of being on a transactional. Uh, right. it, it I mean, it's it's... serves a purpose but I don't feel good about that. Um, I think it was Maya Angelou that said you know uh, any conversation you have with someone 15-20 years down the road you will not remember the details of what you talked about you will remember how you felt Mm. at the end of that and I I always remember that as something that is critical to any conversation I'm having is uh, make the person feel support it and trust it so that I mean, this is this is a long arc of a relationship, this isn't a one-time thing where I'm trying to get something out of you. Mm. That's the best advice I would ever
0: give anyone, uh,
1: not only in, in the startup community, just in general. It, yeah. In general, try to connect, and that's what
0: we did at first. I think that that's probably the best way to do it. If you can resonate on a, on a personal level, uh, then a lot of things happen. A quick quote I always say, and, uh, I think I've said it before on podcasts, so if you're listening to this again, I'm sorry but it's, it's by Jeffrey uh, Gidem, who has the 12.5 principles of sales. It's a small little red book. Uh, at the back of the book, you'll find a great book. It's my favorite one for sales. It says a sale will earn you, will earn you a commission, but a friendship will, will earn you a fortune, yeah. you know? And, and, and That's so true. Right? It, it just goes a long way. Part of having that empathy that though there, I think you will resonate with this is, is that you've traveled to different places, right? So we talked about some of the major cities, how was that for you? Was it difficult? I'm sure someone probably this might have, that, that include, They're thinking of moving or something. Can you give us just a quick rundown of those cities? What happened? Where uh, did you go? Absolutely. So uh, I would
1: say the place I felt the most foreign in was Shanghai. Uh, just because a lot of people outside of the office itself didn't speak English mm. and i I had the very real experience of, of uh you know not going into a restaurant and not being able to order something because I everything was't in, in Chinese or at the like point of pictures to be able to say this is what I want and I had I, I I i know what it feels like to be like an immigrant who doesn't speak English coming to Canada, for example but that experience is is uh, opening mm. right because I consider myself an educated person but can't communicate the basic stuff because you don't speak the language that felt like a very educational experience for me a very humbling experience Um, so I have a lot of respect as a result of that people that come to Canada from all parts of the world and Mm -hmm. try and make a new life here Um, so what I learned from that experience traveling around the world is that human beings are human beings we talked about trust earlier how do you build that it doesn't matter if we're sitting in China or we're sitting in London or New York Human beings are human beings. You have got to find a way to be able to connect with them, mm-hmm. and it's the same. It really is. Where so I always look for well, what do we have in common. Start with that and build from there. You know whether whether this is going to be a, a long term successful financial relationship or a right. personal relationship. It doesn't matter. You start with a uh, common goal.
0: I love that. One of the things I wanted to ask as well, because you're you're very well traveled. Favorite favorite sort of city, favorite favorite country, yeah. and thinking towards uh, that.
1: It's, it's like picking a favorite child, right? <laughs> and, uh, I If I if I were pressed on that, um, I went to Nepal and I wow. had the base camp of Maddivers. But the people that I met in Nepal, mm. unbelievably happy relative to me and with so very little in terms of what they own. Mm. And that really left a mark with me in terms of uh, you don't have to have a lot to be happy. Mm. So I would say that with because of the market left on me as a person they're my favorite question
0: wow and i just actually remembered something because you, you were saying this but when we had coffee you mentioned that you're going to go on a retreat right oh yeah please mention that so, so it's, a, it's a yoga retreat but it's a silent retreat as well so there's no talk it just it explains that. sure this is so actually retreat. it's
1: coming up in less than two weeks there you go it's going to be going now <laughs> it's a 10-day it's silent meditation retreat yeah. uh, no yoga no books, no phones, okay. uh, no eye contact, no talking to, to people in, in the vipassana, is what it's called, the vipassana retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, the goal is really you get in touch with yourself and you, you try and sit with that for the longest well, 10 days. Wow. And um, I've been talking to a lot of people who have done it um, and they've made it through the 10 days, but they say that it's really tough. Days zero to days four to eight, roughly. Some people have broken down. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they couldn't, they couldn't take any more of this, um, and yet when they pushed through that that point, mm-hmm. they came out of it feeling, wow! I mean, it's just a new appreciation. Of life. Yeah. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm a little bit nervous about that breakdown period. Okay. <laughs> I know it's going to happen, um, but yeah, just being disconnected from a phone for me, I, I think that that would be the most uncomfortable experience. Yeah, I'm
0: just I'm. I'm I don't know how, how much I would fear, I, I, although I, I honestly do think it's, it's, it's very valuable in the sense that sometimes you just need to step away, you know, and just, just live in silence. I think what we, and I'm, I'm sort of privy to this too, but uh, in a world full of distractions, right? And I think for a lot of people, this is more psychological, but you might appreciate this. Uh, it's, I think we actually, we're kind of scared to, to sit alone, you know, if you really think about it, like, like we all have, have a job, right? So you finish from your job, you go home, what's the first thing you do? You either put on music, you turn on the TV, Netflix, or you, you know, you're sort of distracted with something, right? If you're a family, you have kids, or, you know, your wife, or, or whatever the context is. Then, oh, I'm going to go to the gym. You know, that's an hour there. You come back, you put on the TV again, or you're doing emails. Or, and sure. so you're constantly distracted, but actually sitting alone. I think a lot of people might have uh, issues with this uh, for whatever psychological reasons, but it's kind of it's an interesting test uh, to you to, to learn more about yourself, to reflect on things that you actually appreciate, you value, things you can improve on. So uh, that's a, that's amazing for you, man. I definitely want to want to, want to get some feedback. I mean, and if We should have a follow-up coffee at least when we yeah, come back. Yeah, well, I'm going to do that. But uh, okay. one of the things before we end this, uh, Darrell, I really appreciate your insight so far. I always leave uh, the podcast with this, which is one tip or piece of advice you give to someone right now watching this. What would it be? Huh. Uh, are you talking the startup community
1: or? Generally. Generally. Um, wow, that's. It's no, it's when you say give one. There's yeah. so much I want to.
0: You can give a couple, a couple. If they're related, just, just go for it.
1: Um, I would say the best advice I would give anyone would be, uh, you know, what I said before is I think in this world, in this time, in this age, uh, we have so much politics, so many world issues going on. People focuses on they focus on differences. How am I different than someone else? I, I say do the opposite. You know, even if someone violently disagrees with you—let's take the, politi- the political uh, spectrum, someone on opposite ends of uh, the spectrum from you—you mm-hmm. you should still be able to sit down and have a, a conversation with them uh, without demonizing them uh, because of preconceptions. Uh, ultimately, try and discover through curiosity what you have in common. Now, I, I guarantee you, you will have more in common with them than you give yourself credit for. So the best advice I can say is is uh, give yourself the space to have those conversations with people you disagree with.
0: I love that. that that's awesome advice. Daryl, thank you so much for doing this, man. Uh, for everybody watching, too, if you do want to connect with Daryl, please do check out the CBCA website. Uh, his LinkedIn profile is also attached below for anybody who wants to connect with Daryl. Amazing, amazing guy, really. Uh, and, and, yeah, thanks for making this episode amazing.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much, George.
0: Cheers. All right, everybody. Take care.